I want to invite you this morning, if you would join me in Acts chapter 20. We're going to be in Acts chapter 20. Something we really like to do is spend as much time as we possibly can in this thing called the Bible that we refer to as God's Word. We really believe that God speaks to us, and we not only want to read it and expose what's in it, but we also pray that God, in a miraculous and mysterious way, uses it to expose things that are in us. And so we love expository access to the, to, to the Bible. We love expository approach to the Bible. But we, even more than that, we love the expository nature of God's Word as it exposes that which is inside of you and me. And so we open, a, hopefully, in Acts chapter 20. And I hope you'll join me there. If you don't have uh, a device or a phone or, or if you haven't brought a Bible with you, uh, we would love for you to keep us honest that we won't make up these things as we go, but instead root ourselves in this. And if you'd like to have a Bible, we'd like to put one in your hands. So if you don't have one or access to Acts chapter 20, would you just raise your hand and hold it there? And my friend will come and bring you, one of our ushers will bring you a Bible. We would love to put one in your hands. Um, in fact, if you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to have one. Um, like the average American household has over two uh, Bibles per household. So if you just have like one co- you know, covered in dust somewhere, we don't want to add to your collection. Uh, but if you don't own God's Word, we really want to put that into your hands. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 20. Don't be a stranger to the table of contents. And you can see some of the cool things uh, that God says to us even in and around when you're looking for Acts chapter 20. While you're making your way there, I want to I maybe zoom back out. And as always, give you some context for what it is that we're about to read since we're picking up in the middle of a book that we've been walking through together. The book of Acts is this transitional book. It's this fast-moving account of the spread of the gospel that is this good news. The good news that God has brought His kingdom to be visible among us in Jesus Christ. And this good news is spreading. It's good news because it's not just of a kingdom in which there's a tyrant who is king who, who wants to lord over people for, for ultimately their destruction and, and the demise of everyone. But instead, this is good news of a kingdom who's willing to lay down, his, who is, there's a king who will lay down his own life for his own kingdom. And this fast-moving good news spreads all throughout the Roman Empire for the first 30 years after Christ comes back resurrected. Is written by this guy by the name of Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The, the synopsis of who Jesus is and what He has done, we call good news, the Gospels. But, but basically, Luke wrote kind of a two-volume series of his good news. That there's good news that Jesus is this God-man, but there's good news that Jesus has done something for us. But this movement that's started and sparked by this thing that Jesus has done carries on and moves quickly. Beginning in Acts chapter 1, we hear that It moves because there is a message to be declared. And the mission in this movement is also the message. And Acts chapter 1-8 says that this message is to be declared by people who are witnesses of what Jesus has done. First, where they lived in Jerusalem. Then to Judea, the, the neighboring area. Then to Samaria, the people they don't really like. And all the way to the ends of the earth, which is where the end of the book of Acts will eventually get us all the way to Rome, the center of the known world at this particular time. And Luke gives us this fast-paced account of how this good news changed people's views. It changed the way they believe, and therefore, because they encountered Jesus and the good news of what He'd done for them, it transformed their own lives and their own sense of identity, their sense of purpose. And that purpose, that mission, is the message. And that mission 
of the message creates a movement and a community of people is the result. So that which Jesus has done in the good news of who He is and what He's done is carried on by the followers of Jesus, the disciples, after He's gone. And Acts is this account of a transition between the works of God through Jesus Christ as a human being, fully God and fully man, all the way to the point where God works, believe it or not, miraculously and mysteriously through the people of God who call themselves followers of Jesus, the church. And God is made visible and tangible and accessible to us in Jesus. And God is made visible and tangible and accessible to the world now in the church. This is the movement. It's a movement, a mission carried on by a witness. As this particular movement spreads past Judea, it gets, as we saw a few chapters ago, all the way to Europe. All the way to the last couple of chapters, this third missionary journey that Jesus... Uh, that, that Jesus inspires Paul to go out on begins in chapter 18 and wraps up in chapter 21 in which Paul goes to different places as is his custom, goes to the people he knows, shares this good news, witnesses that this Jesus is not just some fad, but instead this Jesus is the fulfillment of a promise God has made eternity past to be for us and not to be against us. And this movement spreads to where churches are started around this good news. The Gospel is made visible in Corinth and Athens. And then last week we saw in Ephesus. And this good news is always met with a great deal of enthusiasm. A great deal of excitement. And people are really pumped to hear that God is for them in Jesus and not against them. That God is not up there and out there waiting to destroy them, but God is with us and among us to be for us. There's always enthusiastic response. There's also always adversity, especially for these first churches, these first followers of Jesus. There was persecution. And not like the persecutions, like, I don't like you because I don't agree with you. I mean, like, beginning in chapter 6, people start to lose their lives because this movement, identified with Jesus, shakes up the status quo. After all, even from the example of Jesus who began this movement, you don't get hung on a cross by telling people things that they want to hear. But when you declare the radical truth that Jesus is King, Jesus is God, and therefore the other things that we believe are God's are actually not, things start to turn upside down. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 20, we pick up where we left off last week at the end of a riot. A riot so... so out of control that Paul, a brave apostle, was even urged by his own companions not to go in and defend themselves in the riot, but to just let them do what they want. So beginning in verse 1 of Acts chapter 20. After the riot, that is after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell. And he departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus. And Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians Tychicus, and Trophimus, 
These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after three days, or excuse me, after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had brought, and excuse me, and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had a for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And they came to him and he began to speak to them. So in this fast-paced account of the transition of the Lordship of Jesus shown to us in His presence with us, to the place where God is Lord over the world and shining this good news to all people through His people known as the church, There are all sorts of interesting and amazing and miraculous, unbelievable stories. We've seen people amazingly killed for their faith. We've seen people beaten, bloodied because of their faith. We've seen amazing miracles. People set free, not just from the power of demons, but literally a couple of times from being in prison. And these amazing and miraculous things continue to happen to show that this movement was not just a fad. This movement was the power of God, the good news of God for all people. Even people who were not religious, people who had no history or family tradition of religiosity, but instead this good news was for all people. And as this narrative goes on and on, and the influence of this movement spirals ever further from where it began in Jerusalem, some amazing things begin to happen. And I think what we find in this particular account are some really beautiful pictures of what it looks like to be a part of this movement, of what this movement ought to look like, what the followers of Jesus ought to appear to be to the world. Not only internally for what God has done for us inside, but externally what we do for the world by what we declare in Jesus Christ. But there's also, as we saw, there's some things in the book of Acts that are normative, 
Things that we do, we look and we go, man, that's something we ought to do. We carry on that tradition. And if you find yourself asking, why do we do the things that we do? In fact, even today we'll see, why would we get together on a Sunday morning and gather together and talk about Jesus? The answer begins to be unfolded for us in this particular chapter. And what we see in this movement, I think particularly in this passage or four things you see the value of of exhortation or encouragement you see the value and the insistence upon generosity you see the value of perseverance and you see the value of hospitality because when jesus changes who you are and changes your frame of reference you have a different set of values that which once used to be valuable is no longer valuable so over the last few chapters, that's been a controversial topic. So we talked, you can, you can go back and listen to that. Man, I encourage you on iTunes or SiouxFallsConnection.com. Listen to, as we kind of looked at not only the ways that this declaration of the Lordship of Christ undermined their value of idols in this particular context, but it also reorients our value of the things that we think take the place of God. We would never worship those things, I don't know, on our knees but we sure would invest almost everything we possibly can into them. And they take the place of God, and we often find our salvation, we find our joy in them when they ought to be found in Christ. This causes a riot. This causes an amazing riot. A riot so great that Paul, a bold man who had already been beaten, was ready to stand up and, and speak to the people in this riot, but his friends thought that this riot was so great that they ought probably to stay away. So beginning in verse 1, you see the value of exhortation. The followers of Jesus are an exhorting people. After the uproar ceased, uproar here, this, this word thorobus, it's, it's something that's used by Matthew to describe what was going on when Jesus was crucified by his own people. When they handed Jesus over to Pilate and were shouting for his blood. And when they wanted, instead of Jesus to live they wanted a murderer barabbas to live in his stead and jesus to die in the murderer's place that's how matthew describes this uproar he uses the exact same this exact same word there's a riot an uproar an upheaval you get this picture of an uncontrollable mob that's bloodthirsty and most people would be happy at the end of surviving a particular mob that wants blood to just run away with your own life most people would be content, okay, I survived that, let's move on. Let's get as far away as we can. Let's lay low. In fact, let's not talk about this thing that got us in this predicament to begin with. Let's just kind of, this whole Jesus thing that seems to be kind of controversial, let's just kind of be quiet about that. It really makes people angry, and they don't really like it when we do that. And most people would be happy to get away with their lives. And even though he was in great danger and he'd suffered considerable distress for the sake of Christ, Paul was so concerned with the welfare of the people whom he loved that he sent for his disciples in order to exhort and to encourage them. After the uproar had ceased in verse 1, Paul sent for the disciples and he encouraged them. He exhorted them. It's kind of this twofold thing that whenever these first followers Jesus op of Jesus open their, open their mouth, they exhort or encourage a word that's translated different ways in different places in the book of Acts. And then the second thing we'll see in just a little bit here is they dialogue, discuss. You and I, as followers of Jesus, are exhorting people. We're encouraging people. We, we pull, we push, we, we compel. 
We are constantly moving closer to Jesus. We are so filled with this hunger. Not only a satisfaction with what God has done for us in Jesus, but now an insatiable hunger to have more of it. More so than we ever can be satisfied with in this lifetime until Jesus comes back. This is what we do. So if you ever wonder, quite literally, why it is that even when we get together in our homes together, when we get together on a Sunday like this, somebody stands up and starts talking out of the Bible and talking about Jesus and what Jesus has done, and you ever find yourself thinking, that's really crazy. You're right. That is an uncommon thing. Especially for people who had just started a riot because of it and had been beaten many times as a result. This is who we are. We are encouraging people. We are exhorting people. We seize every opportunity we can to encourage the people around us. Think about using that word, encourage, to fill with courage. We bolster our confidence as we meet with one another with the good news of Jesus. And the good news does not fill us with self-confidence. In fact, quite the opposite is true. The good news of Jesus is a declaration that we are failures. The cross outs us as sinners and broken. And if ever we wonder if we, maybe today I am perfect and I, maybe I don't need mercy. Maybe I don't need forgiveness from God. The cross outs us. Because if we were perfect, if we were sinless, if we didn't need God's mercy, if we could save ourselves, then there would be no need for this Jesus to die. And the cross outs us. And this good news is not just that God has done something for us that we could never do for ourselves, but it's good news that he's done it despite our lack of merit. That's incredibly good news. It's good news for you if you're having a bad day, or if you're currently living in the wake of really poor consequences, if right now you're dealing with the aftermath of some really bad decisions. This is really good news, isn't it? Jesus has done something bigger than you could ever do. But maybe if you're living in kind of that empty feeling of self-righteousness, you know how that goes. Like that feeling of criticism, the critical nature that comes in you from feeling that you really are the best person you know. You know how empty that feels when you look in the mirror and realize how untrue that is. There's good news. There's nothing you can do. So good as you may think you are, as good as what Jesus has done for you. And we exhort one another with this. We instill in one another confidence, not in ourselves, but in what God has done for us. So that in spite of our best or worst day, we still can look with confidence that God has not forgotten us. He has not forsaken us. And there is never a moment as we sing on a regular basis, again, because this is what we do, that not for a single moment in all of history has God forsaken or forgotten us. And if ever we wonder if God is up there or out there hating us, waiting to destroy us, we know with confidence that he is with us and among us, dying in our place on an old rugged cross. Why do we do this on a regular basis, in our homes, over meals? Because this is the identity. This is the identity that Christ has given us. We are exhorting people. We are encouraging people. We encourage with not only declaring the good news of who Jesus is, but we encourage one another with uplifting words. We compel, we persuade. On the worst and best of days, we express love. Maybe the best way to say this is like this, this kind of picture of this word is it's life-giving. And then maybe the best way to illustrate is do you know anyone, and don't look at them if they're in the room, just look at me, right? No eye contact. Do you know anyone who sucks the life out of you? 
Right, please don't, again, don't look at them if they're here. I'm not going to make eye contact with them either. So do you know anyone that like sucks the life out of you? Just like, oh. It's, it's like, you just, like, like you just worked out. You hang out with them and you leave tired. You know, like how am I, t- I just sat there. All I did was listen. And you leave exhausted and tired. This is the opposite of that. That you and I, filled with the joy that Christ gives us, Walk away from encounters with one another with more life in us than we first began with. That's what I pray for you. Is I, even as I declare to you, you even, if, even if we open you know, some morose and dark parts of the Scripture, and if I stand up here and I say, you are filthy, awful, terrible, rebellious sinners. You're terrible, all of you. Me too, we're all we're awful. Even in that moment, there is a moment of good news and of life-giving word, isn't there? That in spite of the truth of that, yes, I am broken. Yes, I need to be reconciled. Oh, thank be to God. Thanks be to God that He has given us the victory over all those things through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you leave with more courage than you came in with. That's the picture of Christians. Oh, that we would not be people who suck the life out of all of those around us, but instead that as we speak and interact with people, we give life. Because after all, Isn't that the example that Jesus set for us? And aren't we, when we declare the good news of what He has done, walking in His footsteps and spreading this life with those who need it, shining light into places that, if we were really honest, are very dark, very alone. We're an exhorting people. We are an encouraging people. We do so with the Bible. We always ask questions. What does the Bible say? And then we ask, what does it mean? This means that we're not just committed to the cerebral and intellectual approach to the Bible, although we take that very, very seriously. What we believe about who God reveals Himself to be in the Bible is of utmost importance to us. It's authoritative for us. So that when we come face to face with something that the Bible says, we don't just intellectually grasp it, manipulate it so that we can understand it, but we assume that if there's something we find in the Bible with which we agree, even vehemently, we assume we're wrong. We're an exhorting people. We're always compelled by God's Word. We're compelled by God who speaks to us and draws Him to Himself. Even when we think it's in a direction that looks like it's for our harm, we realize that God is a good Father who works all things together for good for all of us who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And every step we take, even if it's begrudging or painful, is ultimately for a greater joy and the greater glory that God shares with you and I in Jesus Christ. And we find a place in the Bible that it's difficult, and this is what happens when you take it seriously. In the end, we're an exhorting people. We're a compelling people. We bend, we, we pull and push one another toward God's Word because we believe that without it, we are walking on a path without a lamp and our feet cannot see. We're an exhorting people. That's what Paul did here. This is what the movement is founded on. And it keeps on going. This, this goes on for a regular basis. But the second thing we talked about for, for the most part last week is generosity. We're compelled not only to believe something about Jesus that changes the way we see the whole world, but we're also compelled to generosity. You see, what he was doing, we saw in the last chapter and revealed to us later, was that he was going through Macedonia 
through these other churches so that he could take up a collection and offering for the ministry that was going on in Jerusalem. And we went into this a great deal this last week, but suffice to say that these three months described here in, in verses 1-3, through three, as he says a farewell and he departs for Macedonia, they were probably like the winter months and he takes up this particular offering at each place that he disperses. We read about this in Romans chapter 16. We read about this, we even saw this last week in 2 Corinthians. He had suffered a great deal of opposition from the Jews there, but because he wanted to show generosity, he went right back into the lion's den. He went right back into the place that chewed him up and spit him out. Now just think about that for just a minute. You know the value of a relationship when you're willing to sacrifice something of great value for the sake of their benefit. You know what that feels like. And you know what it feels like when it doesn't pan out and you just have resentment instead of joy. Imagine the great deal of love that Paul had for Christ and his people in this area to go back to a place that had just beaten him and exiled him so that he could take up a collection in order to be generous to people in Jerusalem. The final destination was Jerusalem. But however, he was willing to, and as we saw last week, literally go out of his way to love people in Jerusalem. And he seems to be successful because we also, it seems to be like we, we get an, an, an honor roll here. I don't know if you caught that, but it started listing, as you heard me like struggling through the pronunciation of lots of Greek names that we don't usually anymore. Um, this is like an honor roll of people. And if we skip through the New Testament, you'll come to find that each one of these people represents a particular church that Paul had planted. In some cases, even a few chapters before what we're reading now. You can go back and see. These are key characters, even for the rest of the New Testament churches, for the rest of the Bible. And they not only want to give generosity, show generosity to the people in Jerusalem, but they even come alongside and go with them. Something weird happens. And one of the marks of this movement we also see is perseverance. We're not only a people who encourage, who give life in our words, and we're not only a people who are radically generous because God has been radically generous to us, but we're also people of perseverance. I want to maybe show you and and try to illustrate this to you uh, and maybe show you exactly what I mean when I say this. You see, as he was kind of working through this particular project that he had of ministering to the people in Jerusalem, he might have been also doing it because ultimately the people in Jerusalem, the Jews who had been persecuting, and later we see in the next couple chapters, still want to kill him, thought that Paul was crazy for going outside of their camp to tell others about Jesus. Right? Tell them we hate them. We don't like them. Do you know what they do? Do you know what they're like? I don't know if you've ever heard this from religious people. I don't know if you know this, but religious people don't like change. They don't really like insiders uh, being threatened by outsiders. But this is, this is particularly what Paul had to deal with. And Paul goes out of his way, maybe even just to show the people that what he's doing is fruitful, that God has ordained this mission. And he does something really interesting. So the last couple of weeks, we've kind of hopefully got an idea of what's going on. And, and you'll see in between this particular um, second to third journey, the color on the map goes from purple to yellow. So if you look at the yellow pads, this is where... Paul is going. And as he is at the end here toward Athens in in Greece, he's at Corinth. And the port city, the port of Corinth, which is again, as you remember, on an isthmus, say that ten times fast, is Centuria. 
And the fastest way back from Centria all the way to Jerusalem is a straight line across the water. In fact, it's the most efficient way because at this particular time, many people who would have been in this particular region would have been on a pilgrimage to be back for the Passover. Many of them would have already chartered ships and arranged for travel across the water, which would have been the quickest way and because of the winds that were happening at that particular season, would have been the most efficient and direct way to get back to Jerusalem. However, what is it that we find out? When he sets his sights on Jerusalem, when he decides that his next step is to show generosity to Jerusalem, it is discovered that there is a plot to kill Paul. Again. There's another plot to kill Paul. Just a side note here, I just want to throw this out there for your reflection how the gospel continues to go out. Religious fundamentalism that results in senseless violence is not new. It's not new. And thanks be to God, it doesn't stop the travel of the gospel across boundaries with which we would normally be held back. But, if there was a plot to kill you, and there was a group of people who wanted you dead, the worst place you could be is locked up in a boat for a long time with them. Right? Like, if you knew there were people about to kill you, the worst place you would want to be is locked up in some boat. You'd want to be out in the open. You'd want to be on the run. You wouldn't be locked up in some boat. And so Paul, instead of kind of cowering from this, he just says, you know what we'll do? In light of recent events, people are going to try to kill us on this boat. Here's what we're going to do. We're just going to go back to the way we came, which just so you know, is also full of people who tried to kill him. And this path that's yellow is to a bunch of places where people had already wanted to kill him. And they continue for the next few chapters. But he's willing to go out of his way in order to encourage these people along the way. This is the kind of perseverance that baffles the imagination. In the midst of a death threat from his own people, as he refers to in Corinthians, his own countrymen want him death want him dead and want death to him. Instead of cowering or running away, he just decides, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go preach the gospel in these places. We're not only people who exhort and admonish in places that are convenient. We're not only generous to people who are easy to love, but we also have a sense of perseverance about this good news that has been entrusted to us such that we will go to great lengths, even literally out of our way, so that people can hear it. And in spite of persecution, in spite of a death threat, he chooses to go on proclaiming this good news. Let me just throw this out there. Oh, that we would be the kind of people that despite the lack of approval, despite the fact that preaching Jesus puts us at odds with our culture, that Jesus is Lord and that no one else is, would, be the, would we be the kind of people that have the perseverance, the commitment to our, and our love of Jesus that we would continue to share this good news over and over and over again? And when I say this, that's a prayer that I pray every day. Oh, would I be a kind of person who is more worried about the approval of God than I am the approval of people that I know? Because, man, I, re, I don't know, I, I feel that inside of me. I want the approval of people. 
oh, I want them to like me. I'd hate to tell them something that they didn't want to hear. I'd hate to tell them a, a, a troubling or, or an inconvenient truth. Oh, would we be the kind of people that if there's a death threat, hey, we're going to kill you if you do this, you just go, okay, well then we'll do it over here. Instead of being silenced by the death threat, he just changes his course. He also does something that's really interesting, just as a side note. He revisits places where God had already done miraculous things. Just as a word of encouragement, even. What if, in spite of, or excuse me, in, in light of like something awful happening to us, we would take this as an example. The next time something terrible happens to you and you think it is, you know, you think it's like just awful, what if we just revisited the awesome things that God has done? We sang this last week in the second verse of a song called Come Thou Fount. We say these weird, weird words out of the Old Testament. We say, here I raise my Ebenezer. Literally means rock of help. Hither here, that's Old English King James for here. Here by thy, that's, that's, that's your, you know that, right? That by thy help I've come. So we sing, we're here only by God's help. Oh, would it be the case that when we have an awful day, when things fall apart, even sometimes by our own hands, we would revisit, like Paul, the awesome things that God has done in the past. And instead of despairing of his own life, Paul says, man, how about we go back to where God delivered us the last time? How about we revisit and think about how far God has brought us? And lastly, you see a radical sense of hospitality. This is where the story just gets fun, uh, beginning in verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart, depart on the next day. This is a really interesting story. It's really one of my favorite. But I, I don't want you to miss some of the key ingredients here. This is the first account in the Bible of what a Sunday gathering of Christians looked like. This is the first picture. Did you catch that? On the first day of the week. Now remember, if you flash back a few, like a decade or more, maybe even two decades, people who were religious and loved God got together on what they called the Sabbath, Saturday. And then something amazing happened one Sunday morning, one first day of the week. Something amazing happened that radically altered the way they told time and they counted the years, and it radically altered their sense of time in a week. That's a big deal, because I don't know if you know this, but like, you know how religious folk love change, right? Mm, yeah, they love it when you, when you switch things up on them. All of a sudden, these highly religious people stopped meeting on a Saturday and started meeting on a Sunday. We see the very first historians, the church fathers, the, the first writings of, of Christians, an epistle of, uh, an, excuse, an epistle of Barnabas. Here's a quote from him. It says, or, or this, one of the, the followers that Barnabas eventually had, maybe his disciples, they, they, they left for us kind of this note that we keep with the day of our joyfulness, the day also on which Jesus rose again from the dead. Justin Martyr says, on the day called Sunday, all who live in the cities and all who live in the countries, wherever they are, we gather together in one place. And the memoirs of the apostles, that would have been, well, I don't know, that would been their first concept of a Bible, the memoirs of the apostles, the gospels, and other writings of the prophets are read together for as long as the time permits. Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly, 
because Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead. So if you ever wonder, what's this thing, what's this big deal with Christians on Sunday? If you ever wonder, why do they do that? I want you to see how gospel-centered the church is. How the gospel is ultimately what's made visible by the church. Even, even by the day that they chose to get together. Make no mistake about it. When we get together on a Sunday, there's meant to be a remembrance of one Sunday a long time ago when something big happened. It doesn't mean that today, this Sunday, is any particular value. It doesn't mean that this is like a special day. Any more than July 4th means anything, right? It's just the fourth day of July. But there's like this commemoration of one July 4th in which a sequence of events was set into motion that radically changed history, right? And I doubt they shot fireworks then, but we do. Because there's kind of the sense in which, like, nothing is the same now. So also, we declare, we exhort and encourage, even by the day that we meet together. Does this mean like it's a sin to not get together with a bunch of Christians on a Sunday? No, I don't believe that. Although I do believe that Hebrews tells us very clearly that we ought not to forsake the gathering of Christians together. You ought not to forsake it. Not because it's a really cool ritual. Not because it's just a tradition you ought to hold fast to. But because there are gospel implications in it. We are declaring something about what Jesus has accomplished for us one fateful Sunday years and years ago. Every time we commemorate, as Revelation 1 refers to, the Lord's Day. It's a big deal. Because we're invited to declare the gospel, to be exhorting, to be encouraging people. You don't believe me? This is where you get to drop the gospel. All right, hey, let's go, hey, it's Saturday night, let's get together, man, let's go get wasted and stay out to like 3 a.m. And you can say with confidence, no, I can't. I've got to get up early on Sunday morning. And they'll go, why? And you get to go, because Jesus did. This is it. And when someone, why would you get up? Why won't you sleep in on Sunday morning? I don't know, because Jesus didn't. Why would you get up on a Sunday morning? Because even in Luke tells us the first followers of Jesus got up early. They rose early to go to the grave to serve Jesus. And something faithfully and something amazing happened. And Jesus was present with them and he spoke to them. And that's exactly what we want to do every Sunday we get together. There's no great mystery to it. This is something we hope to declare the gospel by what we do. Does that mean you couldn't meet another day of the week? Absolutely not. You could absolutely do it any day of the week. You do it whenever, however. But it seems that they are declaring something, especially at this particular time, that is countercultural, that they gather on the first day of the week. It says that they gather together also to break bread. Again, picture the gospel here. Right, this is actually going to happen. This is supposed to be a picture for us. They not only break bread in that they eat together. Again, this is really cool when God's will like, like coincides with that which is awesome. Some of you are afraid that God like wants awful things for you and like wants to hurt you. And if you would just start following Jesus, life would become miserable. Not true. There's a greater joy for you. And here's, we even see the picture here. It is actually commanded of the followers of Jesus to break bread together. Enjoy good food together. Cook for one another. This is radical hospitality. They got together to break bread, not only just because they were hungry, but because they began to celebrate something that Jesus had instituted in them 
We call it communion or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, and we'll celebrate it in a few minutes. Because when we do, the Bible tells us, we declare the death of the Lord, the death of Jesus, until he comes back. And when we break the bread, we remember that Jesus was broken, not because he deserved it, but because you did. And his blood poured out of his body. And we get to celebrate that with grape juice. Not not because you deserve it, but because of the sacrifice, now you deserve the good thing that God intended for his own son. And so when we eat the bread, there's something more amazing going on here. The gospel all of a sudden becomes visible. Jesus died for my sins. And we no longer think about or reflect upon the things that we've done, but we begin to reflect upon the price that was paid for you and for me by Jesus Christ. It says they got together also in an upper room. This would have been the largest room that they had access to. It wasn't until the third century that Christianity grew in influence so greatly that it became the official religion of Rome. There's a lot of argument about how that happened. Maybe, maybe Constantine, the emperor, was converted to Christianity. Maybe he was just afraid of the pressure that the Christians had and the political power that they eventually got because the movement was so powerful that he just had to agree. So then they began to own property. Until then, they met in homes or in common spaces. A couple chapter, chapters ago, remember the Christians? They met in the Hall of Tyrannus, which is a school a school of philosophy. And I, I've even shared with you, you could insert the word Rosa Parks Elementary for the Hall of Tyrannus. They met in a school. They met wherever they could meet. An upper room, it didn't matter. It says that they were also doing something pretty interesting. This is radical hospitality, and I see this in, in Paul. They talked a long time. <laughs> so much so, it says that there were lamps in the upper room because it got dark. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked even still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. A couple things here. If you find yourself asking, why do we get together and stretch our attention span by listening to this guy talk about Jesus? Again, here we go. This is why. In fact, if you were to travel to other parts of the world, it's very common for Christians to get together and have a worship service that lasts multiple hours. A long time. This is common. We stretch our attention span because we would rather stretch our attention span with the works of God than to stretch our attention span with whatever is attacking us the rest of the week. It says they got together. Just listen to the, the language that's used for Paul. It says, he prolonged his speech until midnight Verse 7, so if at any given moment you're like, oh man, this is going on forever, at least, at least it's still light outside, right? And then it says, it kind of keeps hinting at it, right? As Paul talked still longer in verse 9, so you're ever thinking like this is going on forever, yep, here, here you go, and it kept going for so long that even with them a long while, Paul remained. It just keeps going, you, see, you hear the language of length. So we stretch our imaginations with the exposition of the Scriptures. Now, does that give me an excuse to just bore you and put you to sleep? No. Please forgive me if I do that. If I ever make the Gospel uninteresting, show me mercy. I've, 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 I've erred in my ways. On the other hand, if you do fall asleep while I'm preaching, well, the peace of Christ with you, right? 
a ministry of rest upon you, right? So, so just rest in Jesus. That's what I'm going to assume. I'm not going to assume that I'm boring. I'm going to assume that Jesus has just given you a sense of peace. Granted, I would also throw out it's a possibility that maybe the first day of the week has lost a bit of the value. Usually if you're falling asleep while someone's talking about Jesus, it's usually a result of kind of a lack of sleep somewhere else, isn't it? Sometimes not because you have any, any fault in it. Right? We have several people who come to worship on a Sunday after just getting off of a night shift. And I, what, what, an awesome, what an awesome sacrifice. Like I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hear God's word proclaimed, even though I'm falling asleep. And if you ask yourself why we do this, here it is. I'll throw in a side note here. Um, I do remember someone uh, who I valued very greatly. Uh, my grandfather had this problem. My grandfather couldn't, sleep, like, couldn't keep awake through a 10-minute sermon if his life depended on it. He would just... And my, my grandmother had the, the move. She would hand him a, a mint. She would bump him and stick a mint in his hand. Go, mm, 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 mm. All right? Here's what I later found out. This guy snores the paint off the walls. You know what I'm talking about? So another guy I knew like this would snore the paint off the walls. Had sleep apnea. And he always fell asleep in sermons. So for you that can't stay awake in a sermon, not because of work, but because you just can't stay awake, maybe I'll just encourage you, go to bed a little earlier the day before. Um, otherwise, this will be a waste of time. But also maybe go to a sleep specialist because a cool thing happened when this guy I love great, he was a teacher of mine, and he just couldn't stay awake in a sermon, goes to a sleep specialist, finds out he's got sleep apnea. They give him a CPAP machine. You know what this is? It, keeps, it pumps fresh air into their lungs so they can sleep soundly and your heart stops like stopping in the middle of the night. And then he all of a sudden became the guy every Sunday who was like, mm-hmm, amen. He went from snoring, from, there's a guy preaching God's word and he's snoring through it to all of a sudden he was the guy that was like, okay, go back to sleep you, right? <laughs> we stretch our imaginations with God's word. And if you find yourself falling asleep in it, then forgive me if I've made the gospel unappealing, but also maybe just continue to stretch that God is showing us something here. Why do we do it? Because this is what they did. On the other hand, this may be a, a, a lesson of what not to do, right? Don't you dare fall asleep in a sermon. You're going to die. <laughs> Personally, I would say it just means don't, at any given moment that you might be tired, sit on the ledge of some window two or three stories up. It may have been because the sermon was boring, but it also tells us, Luke here in verse 8, that there were lamps gathered together. Now, this is before air conditioning, so if you were in a hot, stuffy room full of oil-burning lamps, the fumes probably began to get to people, probably wiped them out, and he passed out. But here's the good news, and this is the lesson I think we take from this. As we stretch our imaginations with the gospel, and as it puts people to sleep who are young, that's another lesson, he had that young people hearing God's word. He's probably a boy, 8 to 12 years old. There's good news. He walked away alive. Because when we declare the good news of Jesus, even for some of us who can't hear it and it puts us to sleep, oh, an amazing thing the Spirit does. It's possible that just like this boy, we end up by some miracle walking away with the words of life. It says that the boy fell. He knew he was dead. Luke is a physician, so we know he probably wasn't wrong. Paul picked him up and he walked away alive. Oh, that we would people, we would be a people marked by encouragement. We don't suck the life out of people, but we encourage and give life 
The words of Jesus are on our tongues and we are encouraging. We would be a people of generosity. Some of you have demonstrated so well. You've invested in what God is doing in Connection Church and we're investing that into sending the gospel to the nations and planting churches around the world and even in our region. Would we not only be a people of encouragement and of generosity, but a people of perseverance? We would stick with it no matter how hard it gets. And we would be a people of hospitality who are willing to go out of our way. Did you catch that? He was in a conversation that kept him up all night. Have you ever been, have you ever been in one of those conversations? It just You don't want it to end. He had plans to leave. He wanted to get back in time, but he, it was just so good he had to stay. You ever been in one of those conversations? Like, oh, look at the time. And as a result of being people of generosity, encouragement, perseverance, and hospitality, people who were dead would walk away alive. In a minute here, we're going to celebrate this good thing that God has done for us and the way in which he gives us new life. We're going to do so by celebrating communion together. We're going to take the broken bread and remember that Jesus' words were that this, this is my body, and when you break this bread, remember that I was broken. And do so remembering me. You'll take it, and you'll take the bread and, and dip it into the juice, remembering that it was, it was God who sent his son to shed his blood for you and me. And we declare that he has died on our behalf until he comes back. So if, you're, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian in this room, and maybe that doesn't seem like something you want to declare by participating in, don't feel obligated at all. We're going to sing together. If there's something hindering you from doing that with confidence, don't feel obligated to do it. We're going to get together in just a minute. We're going to, we're going to begin to celebrate what God has done for us in Jesus. And we're not going to think about the words that the world declares over our failure and our judgment, but we're going to declare in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ that he has died for our sins. Let's pray. God, we thank you for how good you are. We thank you for how merciful you are. We thank you that you have called us into a movement that changes the world. Um, and even in this case, brought life to dead places. God, let that be the case with us. I let that those of us, even in these moments, we're feeling just the, <laughs> we're just feeling the darkness of life. We're feeling like the life is sucked out of us. Would you begin to declare these good news this good news over us that there is new life. We are now a new creation. And these moments as we reflect on, on what you've done for us, help us to declare with boldness that it is the blood that you've shed for us that sets us free. It is the blood that you've poured out for us in Jesus Christ that gives us new life. And we say to the enemy that we will not reflect on any evil that we have done and the sin that we have committed, but we will reflect and focus on the blood that was shed on our behalf to glorify Jesus and experience joy in his name. Amen.